Let's take up our creeds at this time and turn to the Heidelberg Catechism at Lord's Day 12, back of the Psalter, page 19. Lord's Day 12, considering and continuing to consider all of the doctrines of the Church of Christ in summary fashion, we read of the Christ. Question 31, why is he called Jesus, called Christ, meaning anointed? And the answer the Catechism gives is because he's been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher, who perfectly reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God for our deliverance, our only high priest, who has set us free by the one sacrifice of his body, and who continually pleads our cause with the Father, and our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit, and who guards us and keeps us in the freedom he has won for us. But why are you called Christian? Because by faith I am a member of Christ, and I so share in his anointing, I am anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a good conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for all eternity. There you have the catechism's explanation of the Christ and Christian. Interesting and familiar we are by now with the fact that when the catechism is attempting to lead us in the truths of the whole counsel of God that he's revealed in the Bible, the catechism wants us to apply this truth, for example, of Jesus Christ, so that the catechism knows, not only the teacher knows, but we all know that we're getting this. That's one of the personalized aspects of the Heidelberg Catechism and which has endeared the catechism to many for 450 years or so. The doctrine, you see, of the Christ is for true Christians to believe the Christ for a robust and fruitful believing. For after all, if we go through the, the regimen of knowing doctrine and being reviewed in the doctrine, and we do not apply it to our lives, and it means nothing, then it is worse than nothing. It is to our condemnation. Believer, you believe in Christ, then you be and must be Christian. And so that's the purpose of the catechism, to have a personalized uh, way of instruction, and to lead the preachers who bring this instruction into a practical Christianity based on the doctrine of Christianity. And beloved, I would say that the kind of instruction that the catechism is giving here, this personalized instruction, this instruction in Christ not only but in Christians, is sorely needed in our day. The end of time, as Jesus said in Matthew 24, there's going to be many false Christs. Here is Christ, and there is Christ. 
people will say. And the ones who are saying that are the ones who are following the false Christs. They are false Christians. So this is the time in which we live, and we can see it if we have the eyes to see. That's why I chose as my text for which to ground our instruction in the Christ and in Christians on that first church in Acts chapter 11, that church at Antioch. And what we find there is that Christians were called Christians first at Antioch, and we find there a lot of examples to us of what it meant to be a Christian then and to be those who were outstanding in the culture and in their city as those who were believers of Jesus Christ. So I want to turn to that passage, that amazing passage of the early church in Acts chapter 11, and verse 19 will begin to read, and we'll read through the end of the chapter of Acts chapter 11. We have the establishment of the church of Antioch, where they were first called Christians. Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephan traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. That would be Antioch, Syria, which would be north of Jerusalem, we're told about 300 miles. And they went, they, these persecuted ones, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, that would be the Greeks, those who weren't Jews, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So you have here the second stronghold of faith, Apart from Jerusalem, you have Jews believing and Greeks believing. And this was monumental in the church of Christ. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. It would be the Apostle Paul. And so Barnabas is enlisting this great evangelist to the Gentiles, even the Apostle Paul, and he brought him back to Antioch. And so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church, we could read, in the church, and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And in these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. Then one of them, named Agabus, stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples now, be at Antioch, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So from there, where they were first called Christians in Antioch, 
we would derive the teaching for our sermon this morning or this evening on Christ and Christians. We want to consider, first of all, more the doctrine of Christ and then Christians, and then what is the fact that this happened at Antioch, And finally, we want to consider the very important question of being truly Christ's, truly Christian in these days of many Christ's and many so-called Christians. Well, the catechism wants to move on, wants us to move on from Christ to Christians, but we move on the basis of the doctrine of the Christ, and otherwise we don't know what Christians mean, and being a Christian means. Christ Jesus is the Christ. Not the first Christian, as some would say. He's the first and only Christ. And what this means is that he's anointed. That's the word for Christ in the Greek language. In the Old Testament, Hebrew is Messiah, same word, anointed one in a different language. Anointed, what does that mean? It means uh, that one is anointed with the Holy Spirit or imbued with or endowed with the Holy Spirit as a power and a presence of God Almighty on that person, making him a, a specially anointed one. Now, Jesus is the anointed one par excellence. That is, there's no equal. In fact, the Bible says of him, he had the anointing without measure. We have a measure of the Holy Spirit as Christians. He had that Holy Spirit without measure, meaning he was completely filled with God and therefore with God's Holy Spirit so that he would be the prophet, the priest, and the king um, in, in an outstanding sort of way. Jesus himself cites the fact that he is the Christ and that this is so important for people to understand, when early on in his ministry, I believe it was at Nazareth, he preached to them out of Isaiah 61. And he said, after he read that in the synagogue, this day this is fulfilled in your ears, and they sat down, and the people thought this was so um, blasphemous of him that they sought to stone him. You know the story. But let me quote from Isaiah 61, which Jesus was quoting from with regard to his being the Christ. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, that is, poured out his Spirit upon me, to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. So this all is said of Jesus, the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah. He is the anointed one of God. What this means is that there's an office. Jesus' name, Jesus, is a personal name. This is the title of his office. Now, what's an office? The office is a place where you represent something or someone else. 
If you work at the office, and the office has the name De Young Brothers on it or something, you're representing the De Young Brothers. And you stand in their place, you greet customers in their name, and you're doing things on their behalf. You're not there for yourself, even if you're a De Young, you're there for representing the company. Well, when you're an office bearer from heaven, you're representing the company, that is, the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes down in the flesh to represent that Trinity. What an office. This means he has authority. Those in office have authority. Those in office on this earth, to lead into other implications of this, have a great authority in their office, and this even on behalf of God. So Jesus, in his office, is a representative of God, an authority from heaven, the right to be in the place of God on this earth. That's outstanding. And this is why, at every turn, he would prove that he was a representative of God by his words, by the witnesses. John the Baptist was one of the witnesses. The miracles were the witnesses testifying that this one occupies the place of God. His other names, Emmanuel, this is God with us, and so on. And so specifically, the catechism says, Jesus is in the office of spokesman. That would be a prophet. One not only who tells the future, but one who is one who tells the will of God. He reveals the will of God with regard to past, present, and future. The Old Testament called the prophets Nevi'im. That refers to a word which means that one is filled to overflowing and cannot help but speak what is in the mind and coming out the mouth. And so there's this propheticness about Jesus, this teacher who is Jesus, and whom the Catechism says perfectly reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God for our deliverance. This is what a prophet is. Jesus himself reminds us that he's the prophet when he says he's the word, and when the Bible says Jesus is the word, well, that's what God speaks. That's the communication of heaven. He's also the priest. We know that because he represents God to reconcile us to God. He represents the people to bring us to God also from that side so that he is the one who sets us free by the one sacrifice of his body. And now as he lives, he continually pleads our cause with the Father. There in very brief form, the catechism describes what it means that Jesus is the priest. That's why the book of Hebrews expands upon this truth because it's so important. Jesus is the priest, not Aaron. He's not after the order of Aaron. Jesus is the priest and the sacrifice once offered for sinners. Jesus is the priest who's wholly consecrated to God and his offering is absolutely perfect and rises as a sweet aroma to God in which he is pleased to accept. And so Jesus, that priest, and Jesus, that priest who pray. Uh, that priest who prays for us. What a sweet thought of Jesus, that representative of God who by his sacrifice has reconciled to us, us to God, and we are most blessed. Besides that, he's the eternal king. 
He governs us by his word and spirit. He guards us and keeps us in the freedom he's won for us. And all of these things speak to us of an officer who's, who's every officer in the Old Testament. The officers were either a priest or a king or a prophet. Some combined the offices like Samuel, prophet and a priest. David was a prophet, psalmist, and a king, but not had all of the offices, but Jesus does, to show that he is the one in whom all of the offices are met and in whom the Holy Spirit is without measure. He's the officer of the covenant of grace. Now, what Jesus is pleased to do as an officer of God is ordained means to save and to execute his office to save the church which he came to buy and indwell and lead to heaven. This is the preaching of the gospel. And I'm moving into here, into how people get to be Christians. Jesus Christ is the Christ, and then there's these Christians. The catechism doesn't say how those Christians get to be Christians, but it just assumes that we are, but I'm going into the truth that is brought out in Acts that there was preaching, and then there were Christians. So you have the Christ, who is the anointed one, who is pleased to use preaching like this. Those were scattered after the persecution in Jerusalem that arose over Stephen. They traveled, they they dispersed as far as Phoenicia, Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Some of them, however, then began to preach to the Hellenists. They preached the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, meaning they were authorized to preach. They were preachers. The preaching was by true Christians who weren't even named that before, but they had the word of God and the spirit of God in their loins, and they could not help but speak the truth as it is in Jesus. They preached Jesus on his behalf. And lo and behold, there became the conversion of God's people, not just here, but way back in Acts, people who were spirit-filled and now officers, officials and representatives of God on God's behalf through the preaching of the gospel. God, who authorized this, this, his Christ to save And this now, the preaching to be used of God to bring people to that salvation that is in Jesus Christ, he's pleased with this. And so you have these ones who'd gone through the fire of persecution, they preached. And then later on, Barnabas is sent from Antioch, or from Jerusalem to Antioch. He sees the grace of God there, And Barnabas then departs and gets Saul, and there would be a helper in this business of of preaching Christ, and that business became the business, the king's business of making Christians. He brought Saul to Antioch. What did they do? whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people, and the result, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Striking that we have a clear testimony today of how Christ's people become Christians set forth in Romans 10. 
How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent as it is written? That is, unless they are authorized as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. And so there's a gladness in this giving of the means of grace, the principal means of grace whereby Christians are made and Christians are known also as representatives of God. That's the amazing things of Christianity. And this is my second point in this sermon. The fact at Antioch was that they, those first Christians, even before they were called that, were partakers of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And we are too. You realize that? When you're a Christian, you're partakers of the Holy Spirit of God. You are joined, not just at the hip, but in the Spirit to Jesus Christ. Jesus indwells us with his word, his life. He gives grace. That's why Barnabas was so startled when he went to Antioch. He saw the grace of God. He came and saw the grace of God and he was glad. He saw the grace of God at work among these people. The spirit mingled with the preaching of the gospel to make a people who now themselves in all the earth would be prophets and priests and kings, like Jesus, that close. That's why they're called Christians. And they would speak the truth on his behalf. They'd be dedicated to the service of God. They wouldn't die to atone, but they'd lay down their lives as thank offerings. They'd be kings and rule over their own spirits and emotions. They overcome the world by faith as kings and Awaiting them is to sit and reign with Jesus and even is now begun that they sit and reign with Jesus in glory in that principle of the new life in Christ. So these anointed ones, the striking thing about Antioch is that they were so known to have the spirit, they so known to be different and known by their attachment to this Jesus whom they said was Christ, that they were called Christian. They were called Christian. They were called, of course, by God, by the amazing call of the gospel which creates life, and gives the spirit and faith. But now they're called by human beings, this name. It was a kind of a moniker. Can't be sure who gave the Christians the name. They were called Christians in those days. Well, by whom? We don't know. Could be that it was kind of a nickname or a, a funny kind of name given by the Romans. They had a sort of Roman humor which they'd call Augustinians, Augustinians, or Herodians, Herodians, those followers of Herod. And here, perhaps they were calling these Christians who were so taken up in Jesus Christ and all of this, and the Romans couldn't get it, they'll just say, all oh, those Christians. 
You see, there was something different about them. In fact, the one thing different about them was that they were obsessed, they said, they thought, with this name of Jesus, whom they called the Christ the representative of God. Now, the Jews probably wouldn't have called Jesus the Christ, don't you think? Because they didn't believe he was the Christ. And certainly they didn't want the believers to be called Christians because that would remind them of Jesus, whom they called the Christ. Jesus has been called, and the disciples of Jesus have been called Nazarenes and Galileans by the Jews, but probably they wouldn't have called them Christians. Be that as it may, might have been mockery, but the name stuck. The name stuck. Two other places in the Bible, Acts 26, Herod says to Paul, almost you persuade me to be a Christian. And then in 1 Peter 4, we're told it's better to suffer as a Christian than to suffer for evildoing and not to be ashamed of suffering as a Christian, as a representative of Jesus Christ. And so those two places and those only. The preferred name for disciples had up to that point been disciple or followers of the way or saints or believers or brethren, but here, Christian and not many other places in the Bible, but these three places. And we know, however, and the rest is history, just how the name stuck. We like that name. I hope you like that name, Christian. It reminds us of Jesus, doesn't it? Constantly. Reminds us of our noble rebirth. We are now officers in the kingdom of heaven. We thought we had nothing to say, but we do have something to say, the truth of Jesus. We thought we weren't consecrated to much of anything in our everyday job, but we're consecrated to God in anything and everything that we do. We thought we had not much power in our lives and that we're just being pulled around by the boss or by some habit or because of I have some limitation and that's going to rule me. Oh, no. As a Christian, you're a king, you're a queen. You are empowered on high to be God's nobility. And servants of the Most High God, but those who are way above the world in power and authority as God's people. What's remarkable, they were not called... Antiochian Christians by the Romans, they were just called Christians. They were not called cosmopolitan Christians, which means simply that you're a cultured sort of person, because Antioch was a cultured place. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire behind Alexandria and Rome, and it was a trade intersection for trade routes from all over the world. But these people here, you see, were called out of the world. And yes, in the world they would be, but they were called out of the world and anything that would be worldly, like the culture, like the art, like the plays, like the drama, like the gladiatorial um, games and so on. 
They were called out of everything that was bad and everything that was good. They were called simply to be this other people in the world and yet so different, clinging to a cross, as they say, and believing in a resurrection, as they say. Yes. Because they know Jesus to be the authorized one of God and they, will, they are authorized now and they know it. The Spirit convicts them to be gods and not Antiochs. You see, this word stuck Christians, this, this moniker, this name, because it, it buried all distinctions. The Jews at Jerusalem and the Gentile converts in Antioch, they were now neither Jews nor Greek Christians. They, they were one, and this name Christian united them all. Just as Jesus had said, and Paul would say in his epistles, there's neither Greek nor Jew, nor bond nor free, nor male nor female, nor white, nor black, nor red, nor whatever. You see, here was the first shot at the woke culture that seeks to identify with this or that or the other thing. God himself, by using some other people to call his people what they are, was reminding us that our identity is in Christ. We're that close to him. We still are, if we'd be Christian, are we? Are we? The Christian people there, plural, that were first called Christians in Antioch, were prophets and priests and kings. They loved to hear the preaching of the gospel. They were a whole year. And as I said in the reading, they were assembled a whole year with the church, could be translated in the church, that's that preposition, in. They were assembled in the church. Did they go home? Talk about frequenting the house of God. They were in the church for a whole year. Uh, of course, it'll be ridiculous here, but this was paramount. You see, the first Christians, the first ones who were called Christians, they weren't Lone Ranger Christians. They were together. They saw the need of a local congregation. They saw the need of being committed to Christ there and serving the Lord there and being a prophet and priest and king there to help the body be the body of Christ. And we need help, don't we? They were a local church. They gave to the relief of the poor. That's the last part of Acts 11. Acts 13 has Antioch becoming the, the first mission hub, sending out the apostles on the missionary journeys. They were those who were bound to gather together. They were united with the church at Jerusalem as well. 
The elders cooperated with one another. They didn't compete with one another. They didn't hinder the discipline of one church over another. They were together called Christians. And we were not lords over one another. We were servants of one another, they would say, as they, call, as they did their work in the church. And so you have this amazing example here of what it is to be called a Christian because, and it's all because of the Christ. And have you think of this, beloved? I really would, because we live in a day when hardly anybody knows what Jesus the Christ means anymore. And it's not for nothing that Jesus predicted in Matthew 24 that signs of the end is there's going to be this Christ, that Christ, that Savior, and that Jesus maybe, and that one who claims to have salvation, and that one who claims to have insight, and those people, therefore, who follow these ones who claim to be Messiah. And we have to be on guard. And I want to consider then in this last point some practical things. The first thing is that we have to be careful that we know the Christ and who he is. And you, you can't be a Christian and be ignorant of Christ. And you will be a Christian and you'll be more committed and more consistent and more empowered to be a prophet and a priest and a king the more, excuse me, the more you know Jesus the Christ. That's how sanctification works. Jesus prays. May they know the truth. Sanctify them through the truth. And the apostle is keen on us responding to the gospels of the mercies of God by the transformation of our minds. One, two, have you reckoned with something else that may have been going on when the, first, the Christians were called Christians first? It could very well be, and the words are related, that the people who heard of the Christian religion and of Christ were speaking of Jesus because they couldn't believe he was God. They couldn't believe that he would work miracles. This is somewhat distant now from Jesus uh, on earth. And they certainly didn't believe in a resurrection. It, it could be that they were saying, because Christos didn't make any sense to them, that he was Christos. He was Christos, and the early fathers speak of this. And that's the difference between being good, Christos, and being God, Christos. You see the difference? 1 Peter 2, verse 3, uses the word Christos and speaks of tasting that the Lord is good and gracious. Goodness is meant there. The idea, the, uh, the idea may have been that the Christians were called, not Christians, but Christians, because they were believing in a Christos, and they heard of a Christos, who was a good man. 
And bear with me with this. So they were thinking they had a wrong conception of Jesus as a mere good man, and that he was that, hardly anyone could deny. He walked the earth working miracles. There probably didn't need to have been a hospital within 100 miles of where Jesus was, uh, the way it seems that he was doing miracles all over the place, though, of course, he, did, uh, he didn't leave the world with, without any kinds of diseases and so on. But he was a good man, they, they said. And he did good things, and he had good instruction, and he, he came to be this peacemaker and so on. Well, what happened is, could very well have been that the early church was good. And don't we read of that too, that in Acts 2 they were with, in favor with God and with man. Why? Because they did good. They were now good employers and good employees, and they worked hard, and they raised their children well. They taught them not to lip off to their teacher or their boss or whatever. They were good people. They were Christi Christianis, following this good man, Christos. And I don't think this is far-fetched, that this is what was going on here, of people who had Christ mixed up, they would have the Christians mixed up, and they began, maybe they didn't begin this way, but many Christians slide toward this way. When the doctrine isn't preached of the divinity of Christ and the, the, the divine thing called the Christian religion, that makes for merely good people. So that after a while, the church is known by its love. Nothing wrong with that. Or the church is known by its soup centers and soup kitchens. And the church is known by whatever else it does to feed the poor, to help the community. And so the people who are called Christians are really Christians. They're good people. And they love one another. They get along, and they tolerate people. And you can go there. It doesn't matter what sex you are. It doesn't matter that you've changed into this or that. It doesn't matter that you're divorced and remarried and a thousand times. It doesn't matter this because they're, they tolerate and they accept all kinds of things. They're good people. They have a, they have a good and tolerant Jesus, Christos. Could be that they were calling these people out of contempt goody goodies, as you might have heard on a playground or two. I did. Based on the notion of a Christ who's one of morals, high standard of ethics. To which I say, beloved, and warn you, it's so close, yet so far. The difference between Christ and Christ is one letter. Between Christoi or Christianis and true Christians is only a couple letters. But really, the difference is profound. And of course, we're called to be good people. And we may have soup kitchens, 
and we seek to do anything we can to win the neighbor and to help this community to the Lord. We're without compromise. And there's the rub. Church can become known more for its goodness than for its Christ. That's what I'm trying to say. I don't know what's worse, being known for your goodness more than Christ, (laughs) or being known for your badness more than Christ. That's another extreme. They were called Christians here because it was the reality. There's a match between them and their Savior. But how often is it not the case that we are called Christians with an upturned eye because we come rolling out of the bar just like the rest of them, brawling or whatever we're doing, or we're doing this or that that is unbecoming of a Christian and we're suffering even in prison because of this and that and the other thing we've done. And we do... We make a shame and a mockery ourselves by our behavior because it's as if the Christ we follow says, that's fine, boys will be boys. Christian boys will be Christian boys and Christian girls will be Christian girls. Let them sow their wild oats and so on. (sighs) I sigh with shame, beloved. You know, I later became Christian after the first centuries and so on when it was not popular to be a Christian. It became popular to be a Christian because Constantine, the Roman emperor, was converted in the fourth century and Christianity became legal and then it became popular and everybody became a Christian. That was the first Christianizing, too, of empires. And throughout the Middle Ages and even at the time of the Reformation, they never got it right. They were into making nations and provinces and so on Christian by baptizing them with what? A sword. Be Christian or die, they would say. So there was a carnality in the church, and being Christian was being a member simply of that political realm. This is a Christian realm, and so I'm a Christian. And gone were the days when people actually suffered for Christ, They were just loyal citizens of a Christian nation. And so there's been despot done to the name of that name Christian, hasn't there? And all kinds of false teaching and false Christ and so on. And I don't want to go on except to ask you the question and myself the question. What what? What does it mean for us today to be real Christians? What does it mean from this pulpit to really preach the Christ who went down in Jerusalem in order to be raised up and to show Christians that the name Christian means honor indeed and But it does mean suffering. It goes with the territory. In fact, that's something that is 
a badge of honor, as the apostle says. I, I want to know the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. Not that I'm running to the flame, but running to Jesus and running from Jesus into this world. I'm going to get burned, I know it, and it doesn't matter. What will it take? Oh, to have truth and love, and love and truth together in our witness. What does it mean? What does Jesus mean? What does it mean that we're a Christian church? Does that mean we should just chop off the name Reformed? It doesn't say that the Antiochians were Reformed. Why don't we just not make that distinction? Many people do that now. Community church, here we are. Don't want to be offensive even in the name. Well, beloved, regardless of whether you want, what you want to name your church or not, we need to stand. We really do. We need to stand because the Lord has stood with us and led us into all truth and to develop, and to grow, to know far more than those first Christians did. And yet there's something to learn here, and that is be real, be real. And don't be so calculating, and I may not be so calculating that we just rule out giving to the poor. We become sour on this whole world that's full of deceivers and full of selfish people. Be Christian. And when God comes to us at the end of time, God takes us home. That'll be a beautiful thing. But we're ready for more because then in heaven, we'll get to be Christian and no pretense. There's a man once who suffered. He was being tortured for Jesus' sake, probably first centuries. And they asked him his name. And all he could say is, I'm a Christian. He said, where do you live? What nation? I'm a Christian. What city? I'm a Christian. Uh, are you slave or free? I'm a Christian. That's all he said. He was driving the people crazy. He was irritating those people no end. And because this man was saying something that was his mark. He was a Christian. Christ was his Christ. His all in all. Nothing else mattered. Where I live, my status, how much I make, how many people I influence didn't matter. Does it matter to you? Amen. Our Father, we pray that you would bless us and help us to be yours, followers of the divine one come in human flesh, your Son, our Savior, your Christ, our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. We love you, Lord, for his sake. All we pray 
not to do dishonor to the name of those followers called Christians. May we be known for that. Above all things, we're Christian. We're those who are serious about our following and serious about God's grace that we need so desperately. May we preach that in this church. May we hear that message and be glad every single Lord's Day and come away as those who are resolute. No matter what people call us, may they call us Christian. Christians indeed. Christians in truth. For Jesus' sake, amen.